Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be able to open the Word of the Lord with you. Today, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. John 4. Uh, initially, we were going to actually preach through verse 45 today, but um, there's so much here, and we're not even able to get to it all, so we're going we're gonna to stop at verse 26, and we'll uh, pick up the rest of that passage next week. But John Chapter 4, verse 1 through 26. Of course, we believe that these words come to us uh, by John. He was a disciple of Jesus, but he's writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these things come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were speaking to us and teaching us. And so let's hear together as I read aloud the word of Christ. John 4, verse 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, this is John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, he will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a well, a spring, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, that is the place of worship. But Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and the one who worships him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, if you've, if you've been kind of with us for a year or more, uh, we've actually been chipping away at the gospel of John. Uh, we've kind of jump into it and then come out of it. So we, I think we did chapter three around November and all of those sermons should be available uh, on the webpage. But today we jump into chapter four. And this is a very powerful text. It's a very important text. Uh, there's a lot in this text that is so very critical and important for our understanding of the Christian faith. Um, and I wish I had more time to get to more of it today, but three things that uh, we see in this text that I want us to talk about today are, are number one, wells, or what can happen at wells. Number two, uh, I want us to think about thirst. And then number three, I think this story has a lot to tell us, and I want us to think about this idea of living water. So look at, let's look at wells. Now, this story begins in an interesting way. It actually begins with John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist came and was preaching in a very different way than and anyone really had ever heard. He preached repentance and faith. He preached the truth of God, the righteousness of God, and basically preached in a way that said, no one can live up to this. And the only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can find peace and favor with God is to repent and to trust God that he would be merciful. And so he gave us baptism. And baptism is just that. It's a sign of repentance and faith. It's a, it's a sign of death and resurrection. It's, 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 a, it's a way of saying that me and my merits, my life, my righteousness falls short of God. But God is gracious and merciful. He can give me a new life. And of course, we now know what even the people being baptized by John didn't quite know fully yet. We now know that God has shown us this kind of grace in Christ, that we, we can trust in Christ. We can, in Christ, find repentance and faith and ultimately favor with God through his life and through his atoning death. So Jesus came preaching in the same way, and all of this made the Pharisees nervous. They had kind of control of this religious system where people were being justified by their adherence to the law or their following of these religious kind of precepts that the Pharisees laid forward. And so now Jesus is coming, and his ministry is even bigger than John's, and so they get nervous, and Jesus, sensing this, knowing that his time had not yet come, his hour had not yet come, he departs Jerusalem. He gets away from Jerusalem, and he heads up to Galilee. Now, what's interesting, Jesus is heading back to his hometown. What's interesting here is that the common way, the most common way that, that people from Galilee would have traveled back and forth between Jerusalem was along the Jordan River Valley. In fact, if you go to Israel still to this day, there is a road that goes right along, right up through uh, the Jordan River Valley. There's always water. It's a safe passage. And most importantly, for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people at this time, they didn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus doesn't go up through the Jordan River Valley. He goes the alternate route. He goes dead through Samaria. And he encounters this woman. And you have to understand a little something about the Samaritans. Uh, so some of you may kind of recall, if you studied Jewish history or read your Old Testament, that there were 10 tribes of Israel Jacob, who is actually mentioned here, had 12 sons, and they formed this great, the, 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 each of those sons had their, a tribe of their own, or a tribe named in their honor. Their descendants became a tribe. 
And initially, these 12 tribes came together as the united country Israel. But as time would have it, and the story is longer than I can get into today, these two, this one nation split into two. And so you had the 10 tribes of Israel, sometimes called Samaria in the north, the kingdom of Israel, as you see in the blue map there. And then two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that made up the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, I don't know if you know this, but most of what you read about actually in the Old Testament is about the southern tribe, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. Last week, of course, we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. It was those two tribes. It was this kingdom of Judah that was taken away into Babylonian captivity. It was those two tribes that most of the prophets are speaking to. It was, it was those two tribes that we read about in the reunification of Israel and the rebuilding of the temple and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. And, and this Israel that we even read about in the New Testament, it's really the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin that made up this kingdom of Judah that we kind of later knew as the Jewish people. In fact, that's why we call them the Jewish people, because they're of the tribe of Judah. The 10 northern kingdoms, they were actually taken away in a different exile. It's called the Assyrian exile, and it happened about 140 years before the Babylonian exile. And if you remember last week, it's interesting these two are kind of these two sermons are sitting next to each other. If you remember last week, we talked about the people of Judah being distinctively present, distinct yet present. And, and through that, they found favor. They were able to return, reestablish their kingdom. But the people of Israel, the northern kingdoms, uh, the people that were taken in exile by Assyria, they assimilated. They forsook the teaching of the Lord. They kind of became a part of this other people. And so they developed these traditions and worship sites and kind of customs of their own. And there was great division. And so the Samaritans were those people, that northern kingdom people that had kind of intermingled with these Assyrians that had settled back in this land. And there was a great distinction. There was a great rivalry between these two groups. They had nothing to do with one another. They wouldn't even speak to one another. As I just mentioned, they wouldn't even travel through one another's territories. So they didn't have to converse with one another. Again, that's not hard to imagine. <laughs> we uh, see a lot of division among a lot of different groups today. We still see this kind of division among different groups, even in the Middle East today. And so what John wants us to see here and so here you have Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, righteous man, teacher, respected male, coming up to this Samaritan female. Men and women didn't speak at this time casually with one another. In fact, even if you go to the Western Wall today, if you've gone to Jerusalem, you go to the Western Wall, there's actually a, a section for the men to approach the wall, and there's a section for the women to approach the wall. There was a lot of distinction between men and women. So there's a distinction between Samaria and Jew, there's a distinction between male and female, and there's a distinction between righteous rabbi, holy man, and what we'll later learn about this woman is that she's really an outcast. In fact, we see a hint of that even in this text. Every time in the Bible that you read about women going to the well, you read just that. It's women at the well. It's a group of women at the well. There's other times where you see groups of women at the well because the women would go to the well together. It wasn't a fun task. It wasn't a good task. And so, you know, misery loves company and the women would go together. 
to the well. And they would always go in either the morning or the evening, the cool of the day. But what is this woman doing? She's not with other women. She's not accepted by them. She's not welcome with them. And she's here at the one time when she knows she can go alone, when nobody else is going to be there, at the sixth hour, which would have been right in the heat of the day, right in the middle of the day. And she meets Jesus. Now, the reason I I draw attention to this, what can happen at a well? (laughs) It's this woman. This woman that couldn't be any more different than Jesus. Samaritan, woman, outcast. It's this woman that Jesus reveals himself to in this incredibly powerful way. It's this woman that Jesus, as it were, entrusts himself to. In fact, it's this woman, of all the people in the Bible, of all the people in the New Testament, of all the people in the Gospels, is this woman, this woman who's been married five times, this woman who's an outcast by her people, this woman who's a Samaritan, this woman, that's the very first person that Jesus says, I am the Messiah. The very first person that he lets in on his true identity is this woman. Look at what Jesus can do at a well. They're not in a worship service. They're not reading a Bible. They're here at the well. And God meets her in this amazing way in Christ, and she is used. Think about her. She is used. After this, later in the text, we read that she goes back to her village, and many in her village believe because of what she had to say about Jesus. And I say that to you today because, look, you may be here, and you may be a little nervous, or maybe you're witnessing to a friend that that just kind of feels that they're stained. How could God love me? How could God do anything through my life? If you only knew what I've done, if you only knew who I really am, I'm not credentialed. How could I be used by God? Now, that you may be exactly who the Lord wants to use. You may be the person that God wants to use, the greatest among anyone else in here. Now, reading this story this week, I thought about another story. I have a friend, uh, and I'm just for security's sake, um, because we, we will probably use this recording on the internet. But just for security's sake, I'm going to change the names. Though, you can meet this friend. I'm going to invite him to our missions conference one year, but I'll just call him Bob for now. And he's a, he's a missionary right now in N'Djamena, Chad. Now, in, uh, Chad is a country in Central Africa. It's very poor. It's very, um, there's not a lot of people that live in Chad. It's, it's, there's not a lot of natural resources there. It's very poor. It's very desolate. It's very lost. It's very, it's very dangerous. And my buddy is this missionary over there. He's in Njamina. And this is probably happening, I think it was like November or so of 2019. He, we communicate through, I, y'all know I love Marco Polo. So this is how I communicate with this guy. But anyway, he starts telling us this story. He'd met this guy, and I'll call him, again, changing the name, I'll call him Ben. He meets this guy, Ben, and he gives him a Bible. Well, Ben reads his Bible and is converted. Falls in love with Jesus, meets Jesus. This guy in Injamina Chad. Now, the thing about Ben is his father is a Muslim warlord, okay? So his dad realizes that he's been converted to Christianity. Ben's going around telling all of his friends about Jesus. And so this is a true story. I'm gonna invite my friend Bob to come here and tell you all this if you don't believe me. But, but, 
Ben's father takes the Bible that my friend Bob had given Ben and he rips it up. And after this happened, Ben's father got this horrible rash on his hands. It's a true story. And then people are seeing this and more people believe. More people are converted and they start following Christ. And so Ben's father is outraged. And, and so, and, and his uncle is also outraged, who's also a warlord. His uncle ends up hiring uh, a crew of hitmen to kill his nephew because he's bringing such shame on the family. And they take Ben and they strap him to the executioner's chair and they take a gun, they point it directly at his head, point blank, and they pull the trigger and the gun doesn't fire. And then they pulled the trigger again. This is, I mean, I'm telling you, my buddy is telling me this on Marco Polo. Late 2000, late 2019, maybe early 2020, okay? And I'm just like, I'm there in my car, I'm supposed to be driving, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, what is he telling? So anyway, pulls the trigger, point blank, gun doesn't go off. Pulls the trigger again, gun doesn't go off. Pulls the trigger a third time, gun doesn't go off. The executioners are so blown away by this, that there, while Ben is still strapped to the executioner's chair, they say, what's going on? He delivers the gospel to them, and all of them are converted, okay? And so today, this morning, just a few hours ago, this is amazing. Ben, the son of a Muslim warlord in N'Djamena, Chad, started the church shortly after this, about a year ago, and this morning, about 150 folks that have all either been converted to Christ through Ben or through someone that Ben led to faith in Christ. About 150 folks there in Injamina Chad gathered together to worship our Lord. Who's been used like that here? <laughs> you know, a lot of us, we've been going to study school, we've been, you know, raised in Christian homes, we know our Bibles. I mean, some of us have all these credentials. I just want to say, listen, listen. If God in his kindness and providence can call a guy like Ben to himself, the son of a Muslim warlord, to use in this amazing way, if God can take this woman, this Samaritan outcast, and use her in this amazing way to impact her whole village, and if he can meet her and reveal himself to her, what can he do through you? What can he do through your life? If only you'll see Jesus and take a hold of him and realize that he has this living water, what can he do through you? There's a lot that God can do at a well. <laughs> There's a lot that he can do in a worship service. But the second thing that this passage makes us think about is this idea of thirst. This idea of thirst. It's interesting, Jesus, of course, comes to her and he asks this question, you know, could you give me a drink? Of course, she's taken aback by this. And then he says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the woman is intrigued by this. You know, is there another well? You know, <laughs> is there somewhere else I could be getting water that's easier than this? Jesus says, everyone, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will be a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman says, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here. 
and drawing water. She's intrigued by this. She's leaning in, but she doesn't quite understand what he's talking about. He's talking about living water. She thinks he's talking about running water. She thinks Jesus is saying, hey, look, I'm a plumber. I can take water from the spring and tap it in your You'll be the first person in your village with running water. And she's like, yes, that's what I want. I, I, I want this. I want this flowing water. I want this running water. But that's not, of course, what Jesus is saying to her. He is saying, look, I, I have something that can really satisfy your thirst. And not just the thirst of your body, I have something that will actually satisfy the thirst of your soul, that will lead you even to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty anymore. And as soon as she says this, entrusting herself now to Jesus, he says, go and call your husband. Now, if you're kind of new to this story, it may seem that Jesus is changing the subject, kind of right at the crucial moment. And he's not just changing the subject, he's going to the most sensitive topic in her whole life. The woman said, I have, had, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I, I spent some good time this week thinking about this woman, trying to understand her, trying to identify with her. And, and you know, we don't have a ton of details. But man... Here she is, this woman of Samaria, grew up probably like most of us, wanted to be happy, wanted to have a good life. She didn't grow up thinking to herself, I'm going to have a very tragic existence, be alone at the well in the middle of the day, an outcast of my society, used and abused by men. No, she grew up thinking, man, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to get married someday. I'm going to do all these things. And so she did. She gets married. And she probably, like most of us, when we get married, thought, this is it. I'm in love. I'm going to be happy. Dreamed all these dreams with her spouse. And then something happened. Now, I don't know what happened. It may have been her fault. It may have been something she did. It may have been something he did. But, you know, divorce doesn't happen for good reasons, usually. Some of y'all have been through that, and you know the pain, the embarrassment, the shock of it all. And then it happened to her again. Hopes, dreams, this is it, this is going to be right. A broken heart, pain, shame, sorrow. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And here she is now, likely a bitter, ashamed, scared woman. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen uh, the musical Les Mis. Uh, I was thinking about it this week. If you, if you haven't seen it, you, need, you should see it. You should see it in the theater. If you, have, if you can't see it in the theater, you can watch the movie. The movie's okay. Russell Crowe's better in Gladiator, but <laughs> Anne Hathaway and her 
depiction of Fantine is really fantastic. And particularly when she sings, I've dreamed a dream. And I couldn't help but think, you know, I dreamed a dream, he'll come to me. And we will live the years together. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. But now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I think that this is this woman, and again, whether she was the victim or perpetrator of these breakups, anyone who's been through five marriages has felt massive pain and heartache in one way or another. This is the woman that Jesus is talking to, and she comes to him, and she says, please, if you have some water, if you have a way, then I don't have to keep carrying this pitcher of water down here to this well in the heat of the day. If you could just solve this issue in my life, please, Jesus, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming to this well. And it's as if Jesus says to her, I do have water. I do have water. I have water that will really satisfy you. And just like this jar that you carry down here gets empty every day and you have to keep coming back, the, the, the jar, the, the well of men or relationships or sex or whatever it is that you're looking for satisfaction, it is leaving you in the same exact place. He doesn't speak just to the thirst of her body here. He's speaking to the thirst of her soul. And, and that's where we can all identify with her. No one here can identify with the thirst of her soul or the thirst of her body, rather. We've got water everywhere. We do have running water. We got water. You get water. You ever, your water ever go out in your house? Your water go like four hours is like the worst thing ever. We got water everywhere. You turn faucets on. We got dishwashers. We take showers. Water everywhere. It's hard for us to identify with the thirst of her body, but all of us can identify with the thirst of her soul. Your soul is thirsty. My soul is thirsty. And Tim Keller wrote this book a couple years ago called Making Sense of God. And it's a good book. We actually, a group of you guys and me read it through it together. But it's, it's an apologetic book, but it's not a traditional apologetic. A traditional apologetic kind of gives evidence of Jesus. It'll say something like, they never found the body or all the disciples died for their faith or the Bible is this cohesive thing. Therefore, we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's kind of traditional apologetics, and I'm grateful for traditional apologetics. But what this book does is it, is it kind of goes a little beyond that. It, it, it basically says, look, in the same way that your body has appetites, you know, you, you can't survive more than a couple minutes without air. You can't survive more than a couple days without water. You can't survive more than a couple weeks without food. Your, your body has appetites. And kind of what Keller is, his thesis in the book is, in the same way that your body has appetites, your soul has appetites. It doesn't matter if you're Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, secular, Jewish, whatever you are, th there are things that your soul needs in order to function. And so the first one he talks about is meaning. Your soul thirsts for meaning. You have to know that your life means something, that you have purpose in your life, that, 
that you're actually living for some sort of reason. You know, the Bible says that God has put eternity in the heart of every man. Your, your, your life, you have to know that my life counts. It means something. You know, one of my favorite uh, secular authors, I don't even know that I would recommend him. So I'm not necessarily recommending this guy, but he's helped me think kind of through a secular lens is David Foster Wallace. And, and one of the things he says that's so true, he talks a lot about boredom, routine, and petty frustration. He says, you know, life is filled with a lot of boredom, routine, and petty frustration. And that can be hard to deal with. Uh, another friend of mine, Ben Washer, we always talk about the 30s. And it's the 30s a lot of times. Some of, it, some of y'all it happens before, but it's the 30s a lot of times when these three things set in. You know, when you're young, everything's kind of new, it's exciting, but then all of a sudden you get in your 30s and, you know, you go to the same job. It's routine, and you got to keep going, and you got to keep going, you got to go every day, and you're doing the thing. You, you know how to do the thing, but you just got to keep doing the thing. And it can be boring, and it can be frustrating. And, you know, you have some kids, and you got to change diapers, and that, you know, the first time you do it, it's kind of fun, you know? Like, I just changed my child's diaper. About the 500th time you've done it, it's no fun. In fact, it goes from routine to petty frustration, or maybe mega frustration. And you got to do the dishes, you know? You got to clean up the house. You got to do all this stuff. And there's, I was going to tell you guys, there's, (laughs) if you're young and idealistic, good on you, but you're going to have to learn to live with some boredom. Life's not always exciting. You're going to have to learn to live with routine. Life's not always different and interesting. You're going to have to learn to live through some petty frustrations that just don't seem to go away. And I'll say this, if you don't have meaning, if there's no purpose to your life, if you don't know that this is all for something, all of that will hollow you out. Another thing that Keller says that every soul thirsts for is satisfaction. We want to be satisfied. We want to be satisfied. It's almost, it's almost cliche to hear of all the times that, you know, here's the girl, all she wanted to do was fall in love and get married, and she finally does, and have the big wedding, and she finally does. And deep down in her heart, she says, is, was that all that this was? It's over now. Was that was that what I've been looking forward to my whole life? Or the guy that's been wanting to make partner and he finally makes it and now, is this all that this is? Or even the guy that wins the Super Bowl. And then after he says, is this what I've been living for? We want to be satisfied. But it's so hard to find. We, we, another thing that Keller says our souls need is hope. We want to hope. We, we want to hope that things are actually going to get better. You know, politicians know this. This is why election cycles can be so exhausting because politician cycles say, politicians say, hey, hope, you hope in me. I'll make everything better. And then they get elected and it's like, it didn't get better. And then the final thing he says, that, you know, every soul uh, thirsts for some sort of meaning, some sort of satisfaction, some sort of hope. And every soul ser- hopes or, or longs for justice, thirsts for justice. Is there any justice? Is it, can we really be sure that this is right and that this is wrong? Is there any sort of mark of righteousness in this world? We're thirsty. 
And it's not just our bodies. It's our souls. And because we thirst for meaning and because we thirst for satisfaction and because we thirst for hope and justice, we all look to all sorts of things to quench that thirst. Some of you think that money is going to give you meaning or security. It's going to, make, it's going to be satisfied. If I could just get this much money, I'll be satisfied. I'll be happy. I'll have enough. That's a myth that will always leave you empty. Some of you think that your work is going to satisfy you, that it's going to bring justice. I can accomplish this. If I could could just start my own business or I could just make partner, if I could just do this, then my life would have meaning. It would really count. Some of you, it's like this woman. You're looking for a relationship or for sex or for some great experience. This is what's going to make my life really count, really mean something. And like this woman... You maybe came here today more thirsty than ever, more broken than ever, more in pain than ever, with less satisfaction, with less meaning, with less hope. What Jesus is saying to this woman is that jar, that jar that you carry down here to fill with water every day, it's going to run out and you'll have to come back and you'll have to come back and you'll have to come back. And in the same way, if you keep going to all of these things to satisfy your soul, it'll never satisfy you, which brings us to the third point, which is the truth of living water. And what he says to her is, I have a water. I have a water that'll satisfy you, lady. It's, it's not running water in your house. You're still probably going to have to come back to this well to get water to drink. But I have something. I have living water, and it'll really satisfy your soul. I am the only one who can really satisfy you and really bring you hope and really bring you justice and really bring you meaning. And I just want to say this to you today. Jesus is the only one who can really satisfy you and really bring you meaning and really bring you hope and really bring you purpose. And now you're saying, well, how? What does that mean? What does it mean? Jesus can bring me this. And here's what it means. It's because Jesus is the only one who can bring you into a right relationship with God. You were meant, you were made, you were designed to live in fellowship, to be one with, to to be united with, to be connected to God. And all of that has been broken. All of that has been lost by our sin by our disobedience. We've all turned away from that. You know, Luther and people in the church fathers talked about sin as this. It's the self curving in on the self. It's the self curving back in on the self. Your energy, your your meaning, your purpose is, is not designed to be curved back in on itself. It's, it's designed, you were made by God primarily to be pointed toward him, to find your identity in him, to find your meaning in him, to find your hope in him, to find your justice in him. But all that's been broken by sin. And you know, it's not just Christians that have recognized this. Again, this is from David Foster Wallace, again, who was not a Christian, who ultimately, in recognizing all of these things, ultimately 
couldn't bear it and ended his own life a few years ago. This brilliant guy who got so close to figuring some of this stuff out, couldn't quite get there. But he said, and this is an excerpt from his book, which was ultimately a commencement speech, or originally a commencement speech called This is Water. He says this, here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We really think of this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting. It's hardwired into our boards at birth. That's a very honest admission. Wallace knows he's not the center of the universe, but he says, I can't help but operate this way. And as you see in the rest of the little book, it creates in him this terrible uneasiness and anxiety. Why? It creates this terrible thirst because you were never supposed to be at the center of the universe. You were never supposed to even be at the center of your own life. You were designed to worship the living God. And that's why when Jesus ends this conversation with the woman, what does he say? He says, God is calling worshipers to himself. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go here. God is calling worshipers who will be able to worship him in spirit and in truth, no matter where they are. How? How do you get realigned? You know, we call this, as he say, it's, it's hardwired into us from birth. We call this hardwiring of of this nature back toward the self. We call this original sin. How do you get free from original sin? How do you break away from this hardwiring? What's going to free us from this body of death? And the answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus comes to this woman and he says to her, hear this, he comes to this thirsty woman at the well and what's the first thing he says to her? In a sense, he says, I thirst, right? He says to her, can I have a drink? I love this. How does Jesus begin to change this woman's life? He identifies with her. He comes right where she is. He shares right with the experience. He says, I thirst too. Give me something to drink. But of course, this wasn't the only time that Jesus said, I thirst. Of course, when he was hanging on the cross, what does he say? He cries out in a loud voice, I thirst! Now, of course, Jesus in that moment was likely speaking to his own physical thirst, but he was also speaking, I believe, to a much deeper thirst, a cosmic thirst, the thirst that he was feeling in that moment because in that moment he, the son of God who had always been united with his father was separated from his father, forsaken by his father. He was being crushed by his father. Why? Because on the cross what Jesus has done, what Jesus did is he identified with all of us. He identified with all of us. 
All of us whose self is curved in on itself, he identified with all of our sin and all of our rebellion against God and all of our disobedience against God. He identified with all of that and experienced what we should deserve, the cosmic thirst that comes from total separation from God. But he did that for you because he loves you. He was separated from God so you could be brought in. He was thirsty. He was ultimately thirsty, experiencing the cosmic thirst of separation from God so that you and I in Christ could drink from the living water. And if you've experienced that, if you believe that, that God himself became thirsty so that you can drink, if you believe that God himself in Christ was put out so that you could be brought in, that will totally alter your soul. This is why Christians, and I'm talking about real Christians here. I'm not talking about moralists that take on the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about people that go to church to get a nice little wisdom lesson. I'm talking about people that have really experienced the living God. This is why Christians are able to go through life with so much poise, with so much courage, with so much love, with so much self-forgetfulness. This is why. Because their identity, their meaning, their purpose, it's found in the unshakable and eternal God and not in themselves. If you're trusting in money to give you meaning and justice and hope, it'll never be enough. You'll never be satisfied. If you're trusting in work to do that, you'll become a workaholic <laughs> and your, your work will never be enough. It, 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 you'll be filled with pride because you're, trust, you're never meant to trust in yourself. If you're trusting in some relationship to do this, you'll crush the other person. You'll never be satisfied. You'll be so broken and bitter in relationships just like this woman. But if you're trusting in Jesus... If you believe that he is the source of living water, you'll be so filled. You'll be so full of hope. You'll be so full of satisfaction. You'll be so full of meaning. You'll be so full of justice. He is the son of righteousness. He is where justice and, and what is true and right is found. So look to him. <laughs> look to him. Look to Christ. He will give you the living water. And I can't think of a better way to end our service today than by hearing from a couple of folks who have done just that, who have trusted in Christ, who have identified with Jesus as he identifies with them. So at this time, I'm going to ask if, if Daniel and Banks would come forward and we're going to join together as a church family in a celebration of believer's baptism. Let's give these guys a hand as they make their way forward.